like the person that's used to praying to dear Vindley Father. <laughs> you know, just jam everything together, say it real fast. Uh, and uh, episcopos, the bishop, the biscop, bishop. That's where the word bishop comes from. And if I say bishop, then you're thinking, well, if I'm thinking like slantways on the chessboard, the bishop, you know, next to the king and queen on the chessboard. I'm the only one. Um, if you say bishop, then people think, well, that's the guy with the big hat. He's got the big hat, the big fish-shaped hat, the big Jupiter hat. No, not in the early church, not in God's design. There is no place besides apostles and their emissaries, those with their delegation. There's no place where someone is given charge over multiple local assemblies. That's not a biblical notion. That's a church history traditional notion. And we can go to the early church and tragically, uh, one of our very helpful writers in the early church, first couple centuries, Irenaeus, he is saying, listen to the Bishop of Rome early because there are heresies and there are problems and they're trying to combat them. They say, well, maybe if we appeal to authority, we can solve the heresy problem. And it turns out that that appeal to authority breeds its own heresies. There's nothing else for us than the Holy Spirit working in you in the local church through the word of God. And that's the design. That's God's design. But an overseer or a bishop means this person who has this responsibility of oversight. The other, the other office we'll see second hour is the deacon, diakonos. And it just, it, again, we're saying Greek, episkopos, overseer, diakonos, servant. We're, we're learning about the office of overseer and servant in the New Testament. And careful because Jesus is called a diakonos. We're all supposed to be servants of one another, but there's an office that's called the servant. Multiple overseers versus single overseer. Multiple elders versus single elder. Some advocate, maybe you know this about me, some advocate that you have to have only one one elder, one overseer per local church. And anyone else in authority or leadership is a deacon. Some say that's dogmatically what the scriptures teach. They're in a very small minority today. And their argument is often very tightly anchored in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Which is not a place I would use to anchor that argument at all. Others insist that there absolutely must be multiple elders in every local church or you don't have a local church. And it turns out I'm opposed to that as well. Why? Because we're told not to lay hands on someone too early to designate them as an elder. We're told not to, uh, not to, to make a neophyte in this passage an elder because of their immaturity and the arrogance that uh, will arise in the snare of the devil and so forth. And so you only have as many as you have. And uh, one of the tragedies I see in local churches is an elder board of, of immature believers. Oh, but they feel real mystically attuned to the Lord, but they don't really know what they're doing. And so I think that you have as many elders as God gives you in terms of their maturity and designating them as overseers is always a challenge for me when they're not pastors. And this is the interesting part. I believe Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says that some spiritual gifts include the speakers, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And I believe, and I may be in a minority, but I don't think all teachers are pastors, but I think all pastors are teachers. So when you say pastor, teacher, it's redundant. Pastors are teachers. Oh, well, I'm a teaching pastor. Good. All pastors are teaching pastors. Well, I'm not really a teaching pastor. I'm a shepherding pastor. That's a shepherding shepherd. The, past, the word pastor means shepherd. It's, it's absurd. Pastors are teachers because the, the pastoral task is feeding the flock and protecting them. There's a feeding and protecting function in being a pastor, and it's leading them to the good food and so forth. So here's my problem in 1 Peter 5. We have the elders, like Peter says he's a fellow elder, are to exercise oversight, they're episcopeo, they're to oversee, and to poimino, to pastor, to shepherd. And all three are the same. All three persons, all three words are talking about the same person. So when you have my, my, my personal struggle with multiple elder church 
is when you have lay elders that are not pastors by gift. Ephesians 4.11, given as the gift of pastor. When you have pastors that are not elders, that's called a new believer that's growing up to become mature enough to function in that office as elder overseer. But on the other side, the lay elder, now here's the other problem I've got with this. Some people are very good at administration that should never get behind a pulpit. I see absolutely a, a gift of administration in the Romans and the first, uh, first Corinthians gift lists. And I see the great value for having authority in administrative people who are gifted, but are not necessarily pastors. So here's what I think. When we are so hung up on what we call ourselves that we're making illicit distinctions, we've got a problem. Who on the deacon board at Preston City Bible Church is an elder and therefore pastor? I'm not prepared to designate at this time. I'm also not prepared to say to some of them, well, you're not really elders. Because we're all supposed to be serving one another. Finally, on this discussion of who's an elder and who's a deacon, the only difference between the two in the list in terms of responsibilities in 1, Peter, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is the ability to teach. The ability to teach. Again, I think you put pastors in the office of elder slash overseer. That means that if I was going to designate elders, we would ordain them. We would go through an ordination process. And that's, that's quite an undertaking. I've vowed, that's a little bit strong. I've elected to say I will not ordain anyone to gospel ministry who cannot handle the Hebrew scriptures. I just won't. Many people will, I won't. And so there's a lot involved with saying someone is a pastor. And therefore, um, I think the way our church functions is, is wonderful. I am accountable to you. Every one of you, I'm accountable to the board, every person on the board and the board collectively, and we are all accountable one to another. And so in terms of how this church functions, it may be that our board functions more like a board of elders, but we're all servants. And um, those that are interested in ordination to pastoral ministry, that's, a, that's, a, that's quite a conversation. We put quite an, uh, an emphasis on the giftedness to do the work and the training and preparation to do that. All right, that's my preface, my introduction. I don't draw a distinction between elders and pastors um, in that office, and therefore I'm much more Baptistic than Presbyterian in my understanding of the Bible. By the way, the Presbyterian model of governance is not congregational rule with a board of elders locally to a church. It's the elders of the town in the multiple churches the synod in the, in the region. So you have multiple local assemblies and the elders in those assemblies are the synod, the elders over the entire region. That's the Presbyterian model. It's kind of complicated. Episcopal government is there's a one head, there's a, a bishop over the whole church. That's, we call it the Episcopal. That's the English church, the Anglican. But so is the Roman Catholic church Episcopal and its governance, and so is the Greek Orthodox Church, and so is the Russian Orthodox Church. The high churches tend to be Episcopal, and so they have, they have their vicar, their person that's in charge of everything, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Church of England. And so this, this, is, this is a discussion in Ephesians, I'm sorry, First, uh, First Timothy 3, where Paul's sending Timothy to Ephesus. It's a discussion about who is in what position and what the responsibilities are. And the key to government and leadership and ruling and authority in every case is humility, is humility. And I do not proclaim to be myself a perfect example or even necessarily good example of humility, but it's a thought process that we have to go through all the time. And it's something that we actually all aspire to. That's what this message is about. It's about humility and its alternative. And there is only one alternative to humility. And it is the problem. It is the fountain from which flows the whole pro every problem we face. Every problem we face. So let's talk about the devil and the overseer in 1 Timothy 3. 
beginning of verse 6, and we'll read verse 7 as well. This is my translation. This is what he's not supposed to be, not a neophyte. That's my Greek into English transliteration, a neophyte. Neophyte means somebody that is newly planted, literally, a sapling, a new believer. So many English translations will say things like new convert, new to the faith. Some historically have said newly baptized. I'd say by the Holy Spirit at the point of faith alone in Christ. Yes, somebody that's a new believer. It's offensive to hear that when we just started by grace through faith, that we've got a long way to go. But that's the nature of the case. When we first start as newborn believers, we have the rest of our lives to grow up and we'll never say we're there. That's Philippians 3. But in, if you watch in Philippians 3 about never saying I've arrived, there's also the statement, those who are mature. So here's the way the word mature works. There are two meanings to maturity. They're related. One sense of teleao is sufficiently mature to drive the car or to vote or to do to serve or like a grown up, an adult. And then there's the teleao or the teleos that is somebody that is perfect or there, complete, all the way done. And you could say a grown man at 25, we would expect him to know what in the world he's doing. But we wouldn't hand him the keys to the aircraft carrier. Because he's, he still has a way to go. And if you're 25 or under 25, that sounds ageist. That's offensive to say we're youthful and ignorant. But that's what you have to accept. At 44 years old, I have to say, I have a long, long way to go. Maybe I'm not as far along as I should be at this point. And that's the question of humility. But here's the thing. When you're designating someone, Timothy, who's going to be an overseer in the flock of God, a shepherd watching over the flock, you better make sure that he's not newly planted. Why not? So that it's a Hena clause expressing the purpose for the previous statement. He can't be newly planted because of the devil. So that by becoming puffed up, literally, Tufao, to be puffed up, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's heavy. That's the devil and the overseer right there. Shouldn't we be thinking more sanctified thoughts about our leadership? Shouldn't we be far from the wickedness and the, and the, the filth of the devil and our thinking of the, of the overseer? Isn't he supposed to be a cut above? The Apostle Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when, he, when he's saying farewell that from their own ranks, you elders, you overseers in Ephesus, from your own ranks will arrive savage wolves who will not spare the flock, but they'll tear them to pieces. He's telling them, get your slings ready. You need to have your, your grass uh, fields ready to, to feed the flock. You need to lead them by the quiet waters, but you're going to have to have a sling too to knock down the wolves that arise from with your own ranks. Check it out in Acts chapter 20. Yeah, there's a huge problem. And the, th the truth is that we're all very close to failure every day of our spiritual lives. All of us. And this is what you need to hear from your leadership. What your leadership needs to know and say that we're, we're under assault and in a constant danger. Not of losing our eternal life, but of falling into something called the condemnation of the devil. Furthermore, there's a de between verses six and seven, which advances the argument. And it's the same thing he did with the children clause in verses four and five. So four and five are a chunk and six and seven are a chunk. And the whole thing, the whole paragraph three, one through seven is one piece, but there's a logical connection between verses six and verse seven. That's what we're seeing. Furthermore, it's necessary also that he have a good witness from those outside. Marturion, a good witness from outsiders. He doesn't tell you if the outsiders are believers or unbelievers in context. I think it means the wide unwashed world of non-belief of unbelief. The world he's talking about those outside the circle 
of the family of God, the local assembly. So it doesn't mean the people in the other churches. It means people outside your assembly. And if you're in Ephesus, early church, first century, 60s or 50, well, mid 60s AD, 30 years after the cross and the day of Pentecost. Okay, we're talking about almost everybody's an unbeliever around you. So that's actually interesting that the man in front of you is expected to have a good relationship or rapport or a reputation with those outside of you. And here's why. There's another Hena clause. So that he not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. The devil has uh, two strokes in verses 6 and 7 that we're trying to avoid. Not a neophyte. Good witness with those outside. Not newly planted because of the problem of arrogance. Having a good reputation with those outside because of the problem of the whatever is the reproach and snare of the devil. And I'll tell you, as we start looking at these, there's a difference between the two risks, the two dangers. The danger in verse six, the condemnation of the devil is, in my understanding, like the New American Standard says, the condemnation incurred by the devil. That God found iniquity in him and it was his arrogance, his pride, his puffed upness. There are several synonyms in the New Testament for this problem. And this is a rare one that Paul alone uses and the word is tufao, T-U-P-H-O-O is the Greek word, tufao. It's where we get the word typhoon. And if you know your Greek mythology, and I know you do, I didn't know this one. You know, Hercules is interesting, but so there is a, a, a being, one of these lesser deities earlier. It's an earlier God, like in Kronos and these things before Zeus, you know, rose to the occasion and took over everything. But the, the Greek mythology, Tufan, is one of these Titan-type beings who is either the god of the wind and the gale, or in some cases, he's a volcano. He's like portrayed as like a volcano. And he gave birth, I don't know how, to for many things, including the Hydra that Hercules had to fight, and to Cerberus, the three-headed dog that guards the afterlife, or Hades. And some of you are like, what in the world are you talking about? I'm talking about the culture that Paul was speaking into when he told Timothy to go to that wicked town of Ephesus with their magic books and their temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. Tufon, Tufao, is used two or three different ways in the early Greeks and only by Paul, only in the pastorals. Tufao, to be puffed up. See, the gale blows you and you be puffed up. Or you're uh, the arrogant God Tufan, something like this. Here's what, um, here's what the, the different writers will do. It will either mean arrogant and conceited, which I think it means here. And that's, um, I forget who wrote, or, or Hippocrates and others like him will say, it means out of your mind. And I think those go together. <laughs> I'm not saying that he has in mind that you're arrogant so crazy, but I think arrogance does breed a certain divorcement from reality doesn't it? Have you ever watched someone that doesn't even know what kind of fool they're being and they're just blinded by their own arrogance? And so you're like, he doesn't even see, she doesn't even have any idea what we can all see. That's, that's the Hippocrates use of Tufan. Anyway, the little interest insight into this word being puffed up. Other words uh, for arrogance exist, but this is the one that Paul is using consistently in this context. We say in English, you know, modern idiom they have a big head how do you get your head through the door as much as as highly as you think of yourself and these kinds of things so that's the first problem is this arrogance thing gives you uh, the same condemnation that was incurred by the devil doesn't mean you're going to the lake of fire which is prepared for the devil and his fallen angels it doesn't mean that it means that the same judgment this was his problem and uh, so now this is your problem. And as much as you think you're holy and better than the devil, you have the same issue. And that is shocking. And we say, we don't want the overseer to be like that. What happens when he's like that? Well, it doesn't say what happens, but I suspect that's how savage wolves will, will arise from your own ranks. And they won't spare the flock because they are insane. 
drunk on their own arrogance. And I'm not talking about clinical illness, as the clinical people will say. I'll say what eventuates from this will often put them in that clinical situation. What I mean is, you can be divorced from reality and not think you require a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or someone to, to dig in there and fix what's wrong with you medically or otherwise. But, but you can be divorced from reality and just be making dinner and think everything's fine and it's not. And you're right there under the same condemnation as God's enemy, that this is the reason for his condemnation. The second piece, though, the falling into the reproach and snare of the devil, I believe this word reproach is a verbal word. It's something you say. And the devil is a verbal name. It's somebody that's speaking against someone slandering, accusing you, maliciously accusing you. Both Satan, the accuser or the adversary and in the Old Testament and Diabolos, devil, the accuser in the New Testament. These are both verbal assaults. And so the devil has something to accuse you about is what he's saying, because he set a trap for you and you've stepped on it. So the first one is the judgment of God that Satan deserves. The second one, the second one is Satan's attack of you because you've fallen into a trap and these go closely together. Misery loves company and he sets the trap for you to step in an elder to, an overseer to step in. Now, I'll obviously apply these things to all of us. The overseer is supposed to be an exemplar for everyone. We read in Titus chapter two, the elder men, the older men are supposed to be dignified. They're supposed to carry themselves as an example for the flock, right? So are the older women. The farther along you are, you're supposed to be more and more like this. And so Satan is seeking to bring people, Christians, under a reproach, through a snare, that he can accuse them. That seems to be what he's saying here, what Paul is saying here. Let's talk about not being a neophyte or newly planted first. It seems that according to 1 Timothy 3, 6, overseers must be spiritually mature. We have it elsewhere that you don't lay hands on someone too early. This is the same idea, that you don't designate an elder who's not spiritually mature. I think if you're going to say overseers have to be elders, then I'm also going to say overseers need to be pastors. And I believe in the spiritual gift of pastor and teacher. But overseers are supposed to be spiritually mature. Does this make every spiritually mature believer an overseer? No. Now, how do you know you've got spiritual maturity? Well, one way you don't know is if you think you have it, then you know you don't, right? But it takes time. It takes experience, not only in hearing and believing the word, but in practicing it and doing what it says. I, I, one hint I've got from 1 Thess 3 is that love grows. Paul prays that their love would increase and abound for all and for, for one another and for all. That's something that, that is growing spiritually in us is the capacity from God's spirit of the fruit of the spirit to love God and what God loves. That's part of what maturity involves. Second, therefore, they're also called elders because they're to be spiritually mature. This is one of our arguments for why Peter says the elders are to oversee and to pastor. First Peter five. So they're called elders that's, that's both designations of this office of elder slash overseer. One refer references what the overseer does, he oversees. The other references what he is, he's a mature believer. Third, some believe that elder means physical age. But Titus and Timothy are training the elders and overseers, and they're young men. Timothy is told, do not let them despise your youth. He's also, Titus is told, not to train the older men, uh, or to be an example for them. He says they're to be examples. He's supposed to teach them that. But Titus is the one who, like the older women, are teaching the younger women. Titus is the man teaching the younger men. But he himself is a young man. He's an exemplar for them. And so this isn't about age. This is not about age. 
However, do we not want to see as we grow older in age that we grow up spiritually? Yeah, and I hope you all are just as disgusted or hurt or whatever you want to say as I am when you see somebody that's been a Christian for 30 years that is a babe in Christ. I shouldn't say disgusted, I say heartbroken. What a wasted life. It's like a 30-year-old baby. Something happened here that's not supposed to happen. It, this didn't, didn't go like it's supposed to go. So yeah, we should see the gray hairs with their, uh, with their glorious, as, a, as the King James says, hoary head. The glory of their age and their wisdom should go hand in hand with biblical wisdom and a walk with the Lord so that as we're older, we should be mature believers. That's true. And that's why you see the overlap of elder and maturity. But this does not in any way say that overseers or pastors need to be elderly men. But it, it does certainly say they have to be men. That's 1 Timothy 2.12, same context, 2.11-2.12. This prohibition is meant to protect the flock from arrogant overseers. That's the, that's the point. That Timothy... There's a lot of things that can go wrong in Christian ministry, just as, as many things could go wrong as there are people in the room, right? A lot of things can go wrong here with us because we all have sinful natures and we all can give in to our lusts and succumb to temptation and fail. We can all fail. But when the leadership fails, well, that, the, whole, the whole sled team falls off the cliff. That's the idea. And so when you get arrogance in Christian ministry that is so blind that it cannot hear the wisdom of others to say, check yourself. That's a, that's a huge disruption. And what you have to do is avoid it as best you can. Now, will there be arrogant overseers? There will be. And I mean, that will be their normal characterization that this man, this is an arrogant man who doesn't see it about himself. That will happen. And it's a horror when it does. And we pray, pray for God to have his, his blessing. Now, some people think arrogance or humility are personality traits. I'm a fairly assertive person. I try to get sure about what I believe and then I dig in so I can be somewhat dogmatic. I love to convince people of those principles that I think are correct. And so at times, some have, some have said, well, that my personality is an arrogant personality. I don't think that's what it means. And I think if you find assertiveness and think arrogance, then the alternative is passiveness, and there is no leadership there. My unfortunate personality notwithstanding, our goal is constantly to humble ourselves before the, under the mighty hand of God. Not to promote ourselves, but to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, says Peter, again in 1 Peter 5, to the young men. But we need to protect the flock from arrogant overseers. Fifth, this provision in verse 6 is so that the overseer does not fall due to arrogance. Now, do we expect the new believer to have stumbles and hips, Hitches and stops and, and fits and starts. Do we expect that with a new believer? Yeah, because there's a growing process where you learn, if you're walking with the Lord, to humble yourself under his mighty hand. You learn that. And if you don't learn it the easy way where the word tells you and you say, yes, I want that. I believe that's my responsibility. That's what I choose. If you don't learn it from him, then you're going to learn it in a way you, as Jerry Clower once said, you ain't going to like and that's the, that's the hard knocks. It's the fast track, slow track. Learn it from God's word. Learn it from the school of hard knocks where God says, hey, I'm God and you're not. And you're not humbling yourself under my hand. You're not uh, having your thoughts renovated by the renewing of your mind and, and so forth in, uh, in Romans 12. We're thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So the overseer, we don't want him to fall into arrogance. And so... You have to watch this closely. You have to be careful about this. And that's why, for example, Preston City Bible Church went uh, two and a half years with no pastor present before I came. And uh, so, you know, of course, you didn't lower your standards 
I showed up and they said, does he have a pulse? But um, there, was a, there was a vetting process. There's an observation process. Hey, do you think you're mature? I'm growing. That's a good answer for a 30-year-old. The question is, do you think I'm mature? That's, see, there's accountability and submissiveness to one to another in the fear of Christ. So we don't want to fall due to arrogance. We're trying to protect our fellow believers. Now, but notice there's, a, there's an overarching principle here in terms of ministry as you're going to make disciples. Is you don't want to set someone up for failure by over-delegating to them something they can't handle. They don't have the capacity for it, so don't give it to them. And maybe you do delegate, and then there's a, there's a, a, a disruption. Okay, well, we learned. And this is, how, this is how delegation has to work. My sixth suggestion from verse 6 is that the fall caused by arrogance is the condemnation of the devil. The fall caused by arrogance is to be lumped in with, hey, you're, in the same, you're under the same judgment of God about arrogance that the devil started with and we know how that's going to end up now i don't mean that the, the overseer the believer in christ is going to lose his salvation and go to the lake of fire i don't mean that i mean that like the corinthians in first corinthians chapters two and three this man can be carnally minded and i think arrogance or thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think in romans 12 that's one of the great tendencies that our sinful nature pulls us toward. Sin, we've said for generations, incurves on itself. And we, we make it about us. And all of a sudden, it's not about God. And it's me, me, me. So this is the problem of arrogance. And we should, what we're being, what's happening for us is we're all being warned. Seventh, newly planted plus authority in a leadership position plus a satanic attack where satan all the time and i don't mean necessarily personally satan it could be any one of his minions his lesser or greater demons that are orchestrating this system we call the cosmos the world as the lord jesus refers to it he's the the ruler of this world this evil age that we're being delivered from newly planted plus authority in position, in leadership position. That's the thing he's saying to avoid. Plus an attack by your enemy, saying things, suggesting things that you just, you don't even know where you got this idea, but how great I art. I mean, I'm not the best, but I mean, it is me. I'm not, I'm not a total egomaniac, but I'm pretty, pretty stellar. No, we have to let all of that garbage go and join Paul and say anything about me that I could claim that isn't Christ, anything I could claim and boast in is rubbish. It's regarded as dung so that I can gain Christ. It's only him. And so that's the, that's the nature of things. Have y'all read uh, C.S. Lewis? Probably the, my favorite thing that he wrote is the screw tape letters. Have you read the screw tape letters? I recommend it. Highly recommend it. I don't agree with everything C.S. Lewis says, but I think he did an ingenious thing in most of what he wrote and in, especially in the screw tape letters. It's letters written by an archdemon to his nephew. I'm not sure that's how it works in the demon ranks, but to his nephew, um, Wormwood. And screw tape is the, is the senior archdemon. And he's discipling Wormwood on how to make disciples of Satan how to take unbelievers and prevent them from the gospel and how to take believers and turn them in on themselves and destroy their witness. And it's a series of letters. And so it's, it's telling a story about especially how Wormwood, the, 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 the demon on assignment is managing this unbeliever. And it's, it's, it's this great fail in the middle of the story when Screwtape writes that you have failed because he has turned to our enemy, Christ. And one of the great lines in there, let me paraphrase, is as he is truly embracing godly humility, give him this thought. Now, that's the thing. We don't know how the demons communicate. We don't. We don't. But give him this thought that helps him focus on his humility. Get him thinking about just how humble he is. 
so that he loses the actual humility and the contemplation of how great he is at being humble. And see, C.S. Lewis is a genius for pointing this out. Isn't this how it works? The minute you say, I have arrived at true godly humility, you are arrogant for saying so. We've lost it. You've lost Christ and you're looking at yourself. I give sermon illustrations. They're just in stride as we go. All right, number eight. Arrogance is the original basis for the devil's condemnation. I believe that's why he says not a neophyte because he'll become puffed up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Why must we avoid arrogance? Well, I'm not going to give you time to sharpen your pencil, but the first reason you have to avoid arrogance is it's absurd. If you understand the grace of God and who Jesus is and what he's done for you and therefore who you are, and I only know that because I've read Paul and John and the apostles. I only know because I've read the Old and New Testaments. I only know because of God's revelation. But once I take God's perspective through his revelation about myself, I realize thinking more highly of myself than I ought to is absurd because everything I have is from God. So all I have is gratitude and humility before him. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, it is no longer I who am living, but Christ is living in me because I've been crucified with Christ. And the life I am living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think when I'm being arrogant, I'm not loving God as I should. Does that make sense? It's absurd. And when I see that I'm being stupid... When I see it, that I'm being stupid, that causes a certain revulsion in me for my own wickedness. I think it should. And when I revolt at my own absurdity, I think I have the basis for a change of mind. I don't want to be arrogant. I don't want to be absurd. I don't want to be divorced from reality. Second, the absurdity is a lie our sinful nature tells us. Your sin nature, my sin nature tells me how great I art that I know better. One of my favorite examples of this is when someone proposes to draw breath in the oxygen atmosphere that God gave us using the gravity that holds our bodies together that he holds, that God is actually providing. Using the neurons that God made and is holding together in our brain and the electrical firing mechanism of the neurons to think. So we draw breath and we think and then we start complaining at God why did he make me thus? Or why, 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 why? Job style. This is a huge helpful example of human arrogance because I could see criticizing God if you're using your own oxygen, your own neuron function, your own you know, material universe, but you're using everything that he's given you in grace and love for you to oppose him with it and say he isn't loving. It's the original satanic fall. It's the original flaw. Now, how do we come, if that's not the way, if we don't consider God independently and reason about whether he's good or bad, then how are we supposed to come to God? Well, I set it up by asking the question, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. That's really what you're here for. You're not here to ask him why and satisfy your curiosity. We're here to ask him, what would he have of us? Without faith, it's impossible to please. And the one who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I think diligently seek him. That he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, I know some people that think God is, but that he's a meanie. That's Genesis 3, 5. That's Satan's deception. What the scriptures reveal and what your life exhibits what your fact that you're here enjoying a sunny day is that not only does God exist, but he, he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And so I say the absurdity of our arrogance is a lie. Our sinful nature tells us third, when we believe the lie, we become divorced from reality. That's what, that's what we mean by divorce from reality. You believe a lie. You believe something that isn't true. And so your concept of reality is not the actual reality. Now, this is the new way of thinking about life and reality. The new metaphysics is that there is no reality except what you can construct in your own experience. 
Because after all, as uh, Oprah once said, you're God. You're, you're, you're part of what, what makes creation happen and you're creating your own reality in your own mind. New age, mysticism, postmodernism, these things. See, that's just <laughs> arrogance. Who's in charge of construing reality? God, who existed prior to all the material universe. So that's the problem of arrogance. Fourth, then we can rationalize and justify anything, including hurting people. We can hurt people because in our reasoning, we have said, after all, after all, it's about me. I'm not going to think about what my actions are doing to others. And this is why, to back out in our context, you really have to watch this in overseers. They cannot be rationalizing, satisfying their own lust for their self-importance in order to lead because they'll hurt people. They won't spare the flock in Acts 20. Fifth, remember there's a strong pathway between our sinful lusts and our feelings. I'm giving you some theology here. It's a summary of the New Testament, but it also touches on your experience, doesn't it? Why do we do the things that God says not to do? Oh, I fought myself. I really wanted to submit to him. I really felt like it, but I, I just made myself disobey him. Never in your whole life did you disobey God. Did you sin against him because you didn't feel like it? That observation alone in your own experience and my experience is what I mean by there's some sort of pathway in your, in your soul between the sinful lusts of your flesh and your feelings. If I don't get this, then I won't have the joy that I want. If I don't have this, then I can't have the fun that I feel like having. I, that's what we do. It's our feelings. Now, feelings are not sinful, but sinful feelings are sinful, right? You can sin in many ways. And so you can rejoice in wickedness. That's sinful. So I believe there's this strong connection. I don't propose to understand it. I know that it ends at the termination of this earthly tent. When this body dies, I'm done fighting my sin nature. When it's made new in the resurrection, no sinful nature. I don't, again, I don't propose to understand how this works, but I do know this. If I don't get enough sleep, I feel bad. And the joy that is the fruit of the spirit is not really dependent on whether I'm sleeping or not. It's the work of the spirit in me. So I'm saying there's a really tight interface between your body and your soul. And there seems to be this really tight connection between the lust of the flesh and your feelings. And that's why we don't trust ourselves. We trust God. Let God be true, though every man a liar. And that's really the challenge here. The strong pathway between our sinful lusts and our feelings. The door that opens that pathway, I believe, point six, is our arrogance. I think we open the door to the full expression of our lust so that what I feel like is, 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 is what I serve. And, it, and, it, it, and we just give free reign. I'm not saying you're going to sin in this way as the worst person in town. I'm saying you're just going to be wanton and do whatever your lusts dictate. And the way you can get to this, I think the way you, one key way you open the door to this path in life of wantonness as a believer is arrogance. It could be really subtle. I don't really have to obey God. That's arrogant. That's thinking more highly of ourselves than what I think we make ourselves out to be God. Seventh, thus arrogance is its own sin. By the way, your sinful nature challenges you less to be arrogant. And that gives rise to the rest. In a sense, I hope you can understand what I'm saying. For me to steal something, sin, right? God says, don't steal, respect private property of others. For me to steal something from someone is a sin, right? But behind that sin, there was already the choice to disregard what God said. And behind that is the thought that I can do what I want. After all, it's me and I don't have to obey. Now, you may not have thought all that through. You just said, I want it, I did it. But I think there is a, a subtle lapse in our hearts where we're not stopping and thinking, what does God think? Now, I'm not trying to be mechanical with you. I, I'm talking about some mechanics of, of the way sin works in your soul and so forth. I'm not trying to be mechanical. I'm trying to say this is where we live. We have our lusts. We know they're wrong. We generally reject them, resist them. We're training the children to resist their lusts. That's what child training in large part is about, is to say, no to 
the fun that comes from disobedience of God and yes to the joy that is the fruit of the Spirit, right? And like that's a huge lesson that we learn and your kids will, will, will either learn it or we won't. We'll either learn what joy, real joy is in knowing God and serving Him or we'll just be on a frantic search for happiness looking for anything to, to make me satisfied and content in the moment and we'll, we'll, we'll pursue anything and everything for it. I think inherent in all this the subtle thing that we're not looking at is that we think it's about us. Now, what if you come to me and tell me, Pastor, based on your message today, I think you're arrogant. Well, what I say to you is, well, obviously you're arrogant. And then we'll just agree to disagree, right? Actually, what has to happen, this is interesting. What has to happen is God is dealing with me and God is dealing with you, right? You may see it in me. Don't you see what a fool you're being? Help me see it. Let's go to God together. I want to see, I want to know. Help me understand. But you know what? You cannot turn somebody's head to look at themselves in the mirror. You can't. But God can and here's what we need to all agree to. We're supposed to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. We're supposed to say, it's not about me, it's about him. We're supposed to do all that the Lord Jesus says about being a disciple. It's all yours, Lord. Take it, have it. I'm here for you. My decisions are now submissive to your preferences. We've got the exchange of wills like in the prayers Jesus teaches us. Not my will, but your will be done. We should all aff affirm that this is our standard. And whether you say it in my hearing or not, you should choose this and before God choose this. And Paul says, if you any, anything do you differ, the Lord will show you. It's wonderful. You have a spiritual life. And if you have an arrogance problem, that's this blind hang up that you can't see. I'm not going to show it to you. You're not going to show your friend this thing. Probably. Now we have stories in the Bible accounts where someone was able to show a blindly arrogant believer, the error of his ways. But he was a prophet of the Lord and he told a parable after thinking about it a long time and it's in scripture. It's Nathan going to David and saying, you are the man. And he did it in a parable that David was able to see it. Now that could have gone either way. Have you ever tried to help someone see? I know all of you married women. Yes. <laughs> married men. That's part of what marriage does is it's a mirror. You married a mirror that shows you the stuff about yourself you don't like to look at. I like to look in the mirror like, like that. And here she comes over on this side. I don't want to look at that side. I don't want to see the weaknesses in myself. That's what, that's what marriage does. Congratulations. It's awesome. It's very sanctifying. So we can't have neophytes as overseers and it's necessary that they have a good witness from those outside. I want to talk about the reputation of the overseer, the outsider. Think about how the outsider looks at the overseer. This is a really challenging thing because the outsider today more and more thinks that evil is good and good is evil in the culture you live in. And this is not talking about uh, uh, agreeing with wickedness. And don't think for a minute that we're a wickeder culture now in post-Christian Connecticut than Paul was dealing with in pre-Christian Ephesus. They were openly idolaters. We're more sophisticated about it in our culture. First, having a good witness from those outside means that in general, an overseer must be known to conduct himself wisely. Doesn't that make sense? In general, not the, not the demon-possessed person down there that is looking to get the Christians. I'm talking about in general, people out there, people of goodwill, people that are the target of the gospel ministry, and all of them are, generally... He believes what he, what he says and he acts it out. That's the idea. So the unbelieving outside world thinks of the overseer as a holy person, pious, somebody that not rosy glow, but really believes and really walks and says what he, what he believes. Sunday morning conduct versus Monday morning post office is kind of the idea. How many times have I uh, gotten to know someone in a shallow way, like the guy that comes over to work on something? How many times have I gotten to know uh, someone in, in, a, in a conversational way, talking about the kids and the family? And yeah, I can see from your yard, you have children, you know, that kind of thing. 
and I'm friendly and I smile and, uh, you know, um, we're interactive. I'm asking, how is your family? What, what's your story? You know, how many times will I, well, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, I don't think it means that you show up with your collar on backwards and everybody's like, oh, it's the Reverend Alden. You know, I don't think that's what it means. It means that he has a good reputation with those outside. And so usually these good, hard, hardworking people that I'll interact with, they're surprised because they're expecting a priest. It's Catholic community. And, uh, and I got a bunch of kids. <laughs> that's one thing. Oh, oh, you're religious. Okay. Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. And they're expecting a personality, but I don't think it's about the affectations so much as living out who you are inside. He's not compromised. The witness of the gospel outside the church is the point. See, that overseer needs to be, like all of us, providing a context to share Christ with anyone we encounter. Every interaction matters. Outsider can attest to that person's character. And so what about persecution? What about persecution? You know, the, the, the Christian pastors that are prisoners of conscience and the unbelieving uh, uh, states that are opposed to the gospel, like Iran, right? Um, like, uh, like, like in China, when there will be Christian persecution for proselytizing children and so forth. When you have governments opposed to the gospel or cultures, you have to quit doing that. You got to quit doing that. Thank you. We have governments opposed or people in the culture opposed to the gospel. This is not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the way people are treating you, the way people in general think of you based on your conduct. In other words, you can't, if you're a jerk to people at the post office or at the checkout line or whatever, you can't blame it on, well, the, the, the Bible says that Christians will receive persecution. No, you're getting the consequence of your foolish behavior. Right. And so Satan's looking to, to, to make an accusation against you, but it's based on your conduct. And so inside the church on Sunday, here I am. I, I tuck my shirt in, comb my hair, even wore a suit. Must be Christian. That's not it. I do those things because I seek to honor the gospel and you and God primarily. But that's the issue. So what are we doing with our lives? And there's a time for preaching in flip-flops, I believe. I call it camp. But I should do it in a dignified way to honor the Lord. You can't preach in flip-flops in a dignified way. I contend that you can. Sixth and last. No, it's not last. At last. Every interaction is an opportunity to bear witness, isn't it? Isn't every time you spend a moment with someone an opportunity to start the concept, start the conversation toward that person's eternal life. And you don't know who it is or who God's preparing. We don't know. Isn't that true? And that's why the outsider has to say that person is not surprising that I know them. It's not surprising that they're in leadership. Doesn't mean presenting a phony Christian front of God talk to everyone. Oh, Lord praise and Lord bless and Lord, Lord, Lord. Brother, brother, brother. Oh, brother. I am of a certain personality persuasion that I don't really like God talk. I want to see who you are lived out. I don't want to see the front of it. I want to see, I want to see genuine character. And that's just a maturity thing. Some people think that pastors are real pastors if they're petting you. They're there. And that, I don't think that's true. I think that there, there is a right way to handle all different people. We adjust and accommodate whoever we're dealing with. But um, I just can't stand phony. I pray that you can't stand phony either. And I pray that we're as wise as serpents and gentle as doves and seeing it when we see it. It means that you're living inside out. See, that's what it means to have a good reputation outside with those outside is that the work of the spirit who's God working in you both to want and to do what pleases him, that that work of God is directing your choices and your steps and you're mindful of the people around you and how you treat them. Well, what if they're already a believer? I mean, do I have to act like a Christian in front of a believer? I mean, they're already Christian. So do I have to like, you know, be all Christian around them? Well, yeah, 
because you're supposed to be making disciples of believers. So if, if they're not as far along as you are, and you're not supposed to be worried about that, but if they're not in the word and you have something to say, you better have a context in which you could say it. Someone could respect you. So this is what we're saying that the outside, uh, the outsider's reputation, the way they look at you is helpful for the inside family to make an assessment of you. The demonic knife, the demonic attack is described as the reproach and snare of the devil. And I believe that that means that you're giving Satan a basis to make an accusation against you when you have a bad reputation with those outside. He has trapped you. Now, guess what? Why I think that happens. Why would some pastor or elder or overseer find himself with a bad reputation with those outside so that the devil has a, an accusation to make and says, I caught that one. Why would that happen? I contend it's probably because he's newly planted and arrogant. I think verses six and seven hang together. This means that Satan and his minions are lying in wait like hunters to have ground to make an accusation against us. That's what's happened to this overseer. It's unthinkable, but it happens all the time. Tales of the adventures of church. You go ask any one of these hoary headed gentlemen who've been in church all their lives about the kinds of things they've seen in the gospel ministry. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ is battered. It's got all kinds of scars and mars. It's, it's gnarly. Because we live in a world that's out to get us. Satan's gone in the attack and he's looking to get, get hold of the flock. The best way to attack the flock is through the shepherd in part. Eleventh, a compromised reputation is ammunition for the devil against you. Doesn't that make sense? That's what I think he's saying when he says that there's supposed to be a good reputation with those outside. Here's what we're saying. The overseer can't be newly planted and he can't have a bad reputation because of Satan. Whether it's you're in league with him as one snared by him or whether you are just sharing the same basis for condemnation. My summary, the angelic conflict is the context for Christian ministry. The fight that has existed before, before I think man was tempted in the garden. I mean, I think the angelic, I don't know when it started. I have friends that know when it started, but I don't think they know. I, I don't think any of us know when this started. And we talk about this like, wow, you can't know unless you know when. Friends, the way the human race enters into the angelic conflict is in Genesis chapter three. Satan is tempting the woman to disobey God in Genesis three. That's when we first encounter it. And that's where we learn how to deal with it. We believe God's word. But that angelic conflict problem that has been raging since Genesis 3 is still with us. I think it's intensified. I think you can see it in the rejection of wisdom, righteousness, and truth all around you. And we're in something that Paul did never experience. He never saw post-Christian culture. But I think he prophesied about it in 1 Timothy 4. Post-Christian culture. It's, it's doctrines of demons everywhere. Demonic attack is always something we have to defend against. How do you know you've got demonic attack? You really, I don't think you do. Oh, there must be a demon uh, convention or something coming up because they're really getting us today. You don't know. We don't know what's going on in the visible world because God didn't give us eyes to see that. What he gave us was his word. And here we know from his word how to defend. We have to have overseers that are mature and they have to have a reputation that is good with those outside. And if we'll hang on to that, if we'll watch that closely, then we'll abide in the protections of God's word that he's afforded his church. Our father in, in heaven, we thank you for our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for his intercession again for us. We thank you for your provision for us at every hand. We don't deserve all the grace and the blessings that you've given us, most especially in your self-disclosure to us. Father, let us not reject the richness of your word. Let us trust you. Let us embrace these things you've given us 
as they are from you so that we can order our lives in a manner that pleases you. God, we want to serve you with every step. We ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen.